Welcome to Extraterrestrial Reality. Uh, today I'm going to talk about a alleged UFO crash that happened in 1865 in Montana. Or in, it may have actually happened in 1864, but the report says 1865. And anyway, there was an article uh, recently uh, published on online on a blog spot called thunderbirdphoto.com. And the article was uh, written by Kevin Gould. Uh, I've talked about his uh, stuff before, and uh, he contacted me recently to let me know about his new article, and I, I read it, and it's very interesting. Uh, I did hear of this story before, and I'm sure that I mentioned it at some point, but uh, Kevin really goes in-depth with it, and uh, I'm going to go through some of that article today and talk about this amazing story from 1865. Uh, and it could have been, is it extraterrestrial? Is it a meteor? What was it? Something came crashing down. Uh, in Montana back in the uh, either 1864 or 1865 and we still don't know what it is or what it was and no one's ever discovered it there's ha there have been efforts by some people over the years to find the location of this object whatever it was but uh, to this point nobody has found anything uh, anyway we're going to get into this article a little bit uh, the headline is Montana 1865 the first American UFO crash question mark uh, more than 80 years before Roswell, a UFO was reported to have crashed in the Rocky Mountains along the Continental Divide. Could its wreckage still be out there? That's the question. Uh, if something did come down in 1865, or as uh, Kevin later intimates that it could have been actually 1864, there's been there's confusion uh, apparently with the article. Uh, the article there could have been some confusion with the re unnamed reporter who who uh, penned this thing. Uh, but anyway, we'll get into that later on. Uh, anyway, let's uh, go through this article a little bit. He says, when did the age of the UFO begin in the United States? Many people would say it was the alleged Roswell, New Mexico crash in July 1947, although that incident was a blip until revived in the 1970s. Those in the know will tell you it was pilot Kenneth Arnold's sighting of nine glistening objects over Mount Rainier in Washington State on June 24, 1947, a well-reported encounter that, somewhat erroneously, debuted the term flying saucer. Um, of course, American... I want to talk about uh, the, the Kevin Arnold uh, sighting a little bit here. Of course, as we all know, that's what really kicked this whole age of UFOs off. Of course, when he saw these nine objects, they uh, they were crescent-shaped objects. He said they moved like, like a saucer would if you skipped it across water. Uh, and that's where the term flying saucer originated from. You know, it's interesting, you know, after all this time... You know, Kenneth Arnold saw something. I mean, he 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 actually when 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 he was flying that plane, and he saw these objects. He was actually looking for a downed, uh, for a crashed marine uh, transport plane at the time that was missing for months, uh, and there was a reward put out by the parents of some of the uh, thirty plus Marines that were on the uh, craft. Uh, they, the parents wanted to find out what happened, and so they put up this reward. So Kenneth Arnold. Uh, he was on business for something else and he just decided, oh, you know, I'm going to check out these, these mountains here, see if I could find this, uh, this crashed plane and collect that reward. But then of course he, instead he didn't find the crashed plane. The crashed plane was eventually discovered. Uh, but he did, what he found was, uh, uh, he, these nine objects strange objects and he actually was, was unsure what he was seeing he actually repositioned his plane rolled the window down to make sure he wasn't seeing some glare took off his sunglasses 
And yet, all these all these years, we still have people that say, oh, well, it was something else. He was seeing things. It was a mirage, blah, blah, blah. And I was actually looking through uh, Wikipedia uh, earlier today, looking at some of the debunker explanations. Donald Menzel, for instance, he was a Harvard astronomer, very, uh, very much the very first UFO debunker, for sure. Uh, he's he's where the UFO debunkers of today, uh, ha- they, they were inspired by this clown, uh, Donald Menzel. And Menzel, by the way, is also alleged to have been part of uh, Majestic 12. Uh, that, that probably explains why he was a debunker. He was trying to pretend that there was nothing to it when he actually knew exactly that there was a lot to it. But anyway, over the years, some of the Menzel pro- proposed different uh, uh, ideas about what... Uh, Arnold saw, and in 1953, according to Wikipedia, Menzel suggested that Arnold had seen clouds of snow blown from the mountains south of Mount Rainier. So he's trying to say then, oh, it was just uh, snow. That's all he saw. In 1963, uh, 10 years later, Menzel proposed that Arnold had seen uh, orographic clouds or wave clouds. So then it changed after 10 years from snow to clouds. And then in 1971, Menzel said that Arnold may have merely seen spots of water on his airplane's windows. Uh, Philip Klass, he was another big time debunker. Uh, He, he argued that uh, Arnold had misidentified meteors. Yeah. Meteors, meteors. Imagine Uh, meteors that travel on uh, horizontally uh, nine in a a row. Uh, Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's just interesting to, to read all these debunker explanations for these things. But anyway, getting back to the uh, article here, uh, it says here, of course, American pilots during World War II had reported Foo Fighters, a typically fiery aerial phenomenon, buzzing around their planes over Europe and the Pacific. You know, I've, I've been recently reading some Leonard Stringfield, and he uh, that's what uh, Leonard Stringfield, the, the late in, uh, UFO investigator, that's what uh, got him going on this whole subject was he actually saw Foo Fighters while he was uh, fighting World War II in a, in a in fighting during World War II when he was in a, a plane. Uh, so he was that that got him that started his his road to uh, of uh, investigation into the subject. And then uh, also it talks about here, he says, go back even further. There was a wave of mystery airships reported that grabbed headlines across the country from 1896 to 1897 in many ways a prototype of the public fascination that followed Arnold's sighting and never really abated. Uh, Yeah, that, that, of course, they're talking, he's talking, there was many people back in those uh, late 1800s were seeing these airships. What was going on with that? Uh, one of these stories uh, from 1897 involving an airship that crashed into a windmill in Aurora, Texas, and was piloted by a being who was, quote, a, not an inhabitant of this world, reads like a precursor to Roswell. Uh, but let me just stop there for a second. Again, he's talking about that Aurora, Texas crash, which I've talked about a number of times on this show. Uh, and that that incident was reported as straight-up news in, in a couple of different newspapers at the time, and, and the reporter stated uh, that it was not an inhabitant of this world. Those people saw, you know, obviously this thing crashed, and they saw the, uh, there was a body there. They, didn't, they, they realized, all of them, apparently, that this thing, whatever it was, wasn't human. Uh, but they did give it a Christian burial. Uh, unfortunately, they didn't, they, the Cemetery Association in Aurora, Texas, uh, in the 1970s, did not allow 
uh, a group of UFO investigators to dig up that uh, grave to find out what was exactly in there to see the remains. We don't know. Apparently, somebody did uh, use some sort of a vacuum device back then. Uh, somebody snuck in there, and, and there was some metal from uh, f- metal fragments from the object itself that were also buried along with the pilot in this grave. And uh, uh, apparently, they, this whoever somebody stole uh, the, at least the metal fragments, and who knows, maybe the bones uh, of the creature itself too. Who knows? We don't know. Or maybe the bones are still laying there right now. Uh, or, uh, And if they're not, they're probably just dust. Who knows? We really don't know. It's unfortunate that the uh, that cemetery association back in the 1970s did not allow for the exhumation of that grave. Uh, but anyway, continuing with the article, it says here, but there is a little-known event that dates back to 1865 or possibly 1864 in the mountainous wilderness of Montana, which at the time made newspapers across the U.S., First reported in the October 19, 1865 edition of the St. Louis Democrat, this strange tale echoes those later Aurora and Roswell incidents and proves that invaders from the stars were on people's minds even before H.G. Wells first published The War of the Worlds as a serialized fiction in 1897. So anyway, here he has the, actually the, the article itself that appeared in the uh, St. Louis Democrat at the time. And the headline for that article said, a strange, de- a strange Story, Remarkable Discovery. Mr. James Lumley, an old Rocky Mountain trapper who has been stopping at the Everett House for several days, makes a most remarkable statement to us and one which, if authenticated, will produce the greatest excitement in the scientific world. Now, the Everett House was a hotel there in St. Louis at the time. Mr. Lumley states that about the middle of last September, he was engaged in trapping in the mountains, about 75 or 100 miles from the Great Falls of the Upper Missouri, and in the neighborhood of what is now known as the Cadut Pass. Just after sunset one evening, he beheld a bright, luminous body in the heavens, which was moving with great rapidity in an easterly direction. It was plainly visible for at least five seconds, when it suddenly separated into particles, resembling, as Mr. Lumley describes it, the bursting of a skyrocket in the air. A few minutes later, he heard a heavy explosion, which jarred the earth very perceptibly, and this was shortly after followed by a rushing sound like a tornado sweeping through the forest. A strong wind sprang up about the same time, but as, a su- but, suddenly, but as suddenly subsided. The air was also filled with a peculiar odor of a sulf- sulfurous character. These is- incidents would have made but slight impression on the mind of Mr. Lumley, but for the fact that on the ensuing day he discovered, at a distance of about two miles from his camping place, that, as far as he could see in either direction, a path had been cut through the forest, several rods wide, giant trees uprooted or broken off near the ground, the tops of hills shaved off, and the earth plowed up in many places. Now, according to Kevin, uh, a, a rod is equal to 16 and a half feet or five and a half yards. So he was saying it was, uh, Lumley was saying that this path that this object had carved into the forest and into the hills was several rods wide. <clears throat> Great and widespread havoc was everywhere visible. Following up this track of desolation, he soon ascertained the cause of it in the shape of an immense stone that had been driven into the side of a mountain. But now comes the most remarkable part of the story. An examination of this stone, or so much of it was or so much of it was visible, showed that it had been divided into compartments and that on various places it was carved with curious hieroglyphics. 
More than this, Mr. Lumley also discovered fragments of a substance resembling glass and here and there dark stains as though caused by a liquid. He is confident that the hieroglyphics were the work of human hands and that the stone itself, although but a fragment of an immense body, must have been used for some purpose by animated beings. Let me just stop there for a second. So there were hieroglyphics on this strange stone. Makes you wonder, was it really a stone? I mean, hieroglyphics on a stone? Uh, Anyway, continuing, strange as this story appears, Mr. Lumley relates it with so much sincerity that we are forced to accept it as true. It is evident that the stone which he discovered was a fragment of the meteor which was visible in this section in September last. It It will be remembered that it was seen in Leavenworth in Galena and in this city by Colonel Bonneville. At Leavenworth, it was seen to separate in particles or explode. Uh, and continuing here, it says astronomers have long held that it is prob- probable that the heavenly bodies are inhabited, even the comets, and it may be that the meteors are all or also. Uh, possibly meteors are used as a means of conveyance by the inhabitants of other planets in exploring space, and it may be that hereafter some future Columbus from Mercury or Uranus may land on this planet by means of a meteoric conveyance and take full possession thereof as did the spanish navigators of the new world in 1492 and eventually drive what is known as the human race into a condition of the most abject servitude it has always been a favorite theory with many that there must be a race superior to us and this may at some future time be demonstrated in the manner we have indicated now before we continue here i just want to talk about this article so the writer of this article, who we, we don't know who it was, uh, it was no, it wasn't, uh, there was no byline. The, article, the writer's uh, intimating, suggesting that the object was a, a smart meteor, basically a meteor sent out by intelligent beings from some other world uh, to get here somehow or for some reason. Now, I, I, now this is 1865 when this article was written. So, uh, of course, that that seems impossible. I can't imagine that that would be a that. I mean, there's they're not flying here in meteors and and then coming out of a meteor. But that's what they were thinking back then. That was the the the, the thought process at the time. I guess uh, anything uh, something like as strange as that uh, uh, would be something to consider. And of course, there was, he's also talking. This writer was also talking about that they could have been these beings. Could have, this object could have been sent from Mercury or Uranus. Of course, as we know, those planets, uh, there's nothing there. Uh, at least that's what we're told by our astronomers and whatnot. But, uh, yeah, I think it's interesting. The, the, but the most interesting part, of course, is the hieroglyphics. Now, if there's hieroglyphics on this, it, then it wasn't a meteor. It couldn't have been. What what the hell was it? It could have been a, spa, a crashed flying saucer. Uh, but what's interesting in this article is, uh, and, and it's a very lengthy article, I'm not going to read the entire thing. Now, Kevin gets into a lot of this here, uh, a, a lot of investigation. Now, there have been efforts to to uh, find this site where this happened, and to this point, nothing has ever been discovered. But there's con- some confusion as to, for one thing, now, this, the incident, uh, according to the article, happened in uh, the way it's written. It seems like it sounds like it happened in the middle of September, yet, and that's in Montana, right? And here, this guy's in St. Louis, which is well over a thousand miles away uh, from where the Kadot Pass is. So, how did he get there within a month's time? I mean, back then, traveling for that kind of a distance. Uh, it was tough. I mean, impossible. It's it's possible, perhaps, but it would have been tough. Uh, 
He may have been talking about, and that's why some people think, including Kevin here, thinks it might have been 1864 uh, when the incident happened, and he and then and he was telling this story over a year later, about 13 months later, he's telling this story, uh, rather than a month after the incident. Uh, but I, well, the writer makes it sound like, oh, well, it must have been the meteor that everyone saw at that time. Uh, but again, that meteor was seen over St. Louis and uh, the cadet passes over a thousand miles away. So it could have been the same meteor. So there's a lot of confusion about that and uh, a lot of questions. And he, uh, Kevin gets into all of this. So I highly recommend, I will, you know, of course, I will leave the link here for this article so you can check out the entire thing for yourself. But he gets into a lot of this in this article and talks about... Uh, uh, some of these things here. I'll, I'll, I'll read some a little bit more here. He says, any vagueness in the 1865 article has not stopped sleuths from attempting to determine the location of the incident. Researcher Dan Ahrens postulated that Lumley most likely would have camped along Kadot Creek, a close water source for a trapper located just south of the pass. Uh, consulting a GPS map, uh, Ahrens identified two spots that were about two miles in an easterly direction, one from the creek and one from the pass that could be potential crash sites. A user on the above top secret forums going by 2HAL2 similarly pinpointed two spots within an approximately two mile radius from Kadot Pass that, viewed on satellite maps, appeared to display missing trees and an indentation in the side of the mountain. Uh, so that there's sort of there's some some people are suggesting that this the, these places that they're finding on uh, on using GPS maps, Google Maps, that uh, uh, these could this could be the location of where this incident occurred. In 2008, above top secret forum user Two How Two posted these Google Earth images showing what they thought could be two potential crash sites of Lumley's UFO near Kadot Pass in Montana. They wrote that the first image shows an area exactly two miles from Kadot Pass, and there does seem to be an indentation into the forest, stopping suddenly at a point. They said that the second image shows an area where that is uh, 2.7 miles from Kadot Pass, and to me looks interesting. Missing trees and an indentation into the hill slash mountain. It stands out against the surrounding area. Um uh, and then, and then later on, there was a uh, somebody actually recently went there. Kim, Kim Brigman, a reporter for the Daily Montanan, visited Kadat Kadat. Yeah, I'm keep pronouncing this incorrectly. Visited Kadat Pass in 2021 with Lumley's tale in mind. Brigman wrote that today Kadat Pass is all but forgotten, faint, and overgrown compared to its past role as a favored route for native peoples heading to and from Buffalo Country. The pass functions in the present day as a service road for a high-voltage transmission line connecting the Montana communities of Great Falls and Ovando. Brigman didn't spot the remnants of a long-ago space crash, nor was he impressed with the view compared to the grander vistas visible from nearby Sunset Mountain. Uh, uh, and it says here, the author of the 1865 article in the Democrat deduced that Lumley must have found the meteor that was seen traveling over St. Louis and Galena, Illinois, before exploding further west over Leavenworth, Kansas, the previous month. Could the writer have misunderstood Lumley's reference of trapping along the Missouri River for the encounter taking place in the state of Missouri instead of Cadet Pass in Montana, more than 1,200 miles away as the crow flies? So these are some of the mysteries and unanswered questions that we have here with this with this story. Um uh, 
And he, he also says here, it is also somewhat unclear if the writer from the Democrat meant that the Midwest meteor and Lumley's strange encounter occurred in September of 1864 or 1865. The anonymous reporter of the October 19, 1865 article wrote that Lumley discovered the strange object while trapping about the middle of last September and that the meteor cited by Colonel Bonneville and others was in September last. Uh, and then it says uh, a report and then there was another report about the, that meteor he has in here. From, uh, it was an old article from September 4th, 1865 that talks about the meteor. Uh, but anyway, uh, I'm going to push forward here through the article toward the end where he says uh, this. There is one curious detail in Lumley's story. Fragments of a substance resembling gla- get glass and here and there dark stains as though caused by a liquid that resembles a geological curiosity found at the sites of actual meteor impacts. The energy released from a meteor hitting a planet's surface can generate enough heat to liquefy rock and soil. If this material cools and solidifies rapidly, it can harden into a dark brown, nearly black, and partly transparent substance known as impact glass. However, impactites such as this are rare and limited to the largest meteor collisions because of the massive amounts of heat and pressure required to create them. If such a significant impact occurred in Montana less than two centuries ago, where is the crater or other physical evidence? Yeah, so there is a, there's a lot of information here about how the, the possibility that it could have been a meteor. But again, I don't know how it possibly could have been if the story is actually accurate. If the guy actually saw hieroglyphics on this object, I mean, how could it have been a meteor? Uh, anyway, I'm going to uh, cut through another part here. To cut to, toward the end here, he says, Lumley's account is actually quite startling when you consider its similarities to modern UFO lore and the fact that it was reported nearly a century earlier. The Roswell crash debris was said to have material covered with strange hieroglyphics, much like the surface of Lumley's object. Socorro, New Mexico police officer Lonnie Zamora similarly similarly stated that the egg-shaped craft he witnessed in 1964 was emblazoned with a strange red insignia. The image of Lumley examining the crashed object and its path of destruction across the landscape echoes the story of young Jose Padilla and Reme Baca, who discovered an avocado-shaped craft that had plowed across San Antonio, New Mexico ranch land in 1945. Their claims today... Uh, they're known as the Trinity Crash. Um, anyway, you got to read this article. Check it out. I have the link in the in the description. Uh, excellent research. Uh, there's a lot more to it than what I just presented here, and there's a lot of pictures here that he has. Uh, so of the the, the of the uh, Google Earth images, uh, there's a lot of stuff here. So I, I highly recommend you check out this article. I really enjoyed it, and it's a big time mystery. I mean, really, what is it? Is it still there? If if, if this really happened, and if there is a craft, is it still there somewhere? Are there remnants of it left? Uh, I mean, if it wasn't for the hieroglyphics discussion here, I mean, I, I you probably would just say, well, it just must have been a meteor, right? But you're talking about hieroglyphics, and he, this guy Lumley, was certain that this had to be carved. That these things had to be carved by somebody, by a human being. Well, of course, he probably wasn't thinking about anything else out there. Uh, you know, I'm sure a, a trapper wasn't thinking about uh, aliens from other worlds at the time. Uh, he might have been thinking about some. Maybe, maybe he was thinking about some sort of a weird experiment or something. Uh, some that, that a human beings were responsible for but that's probably the extent of a trapper's mind at that time i would imagine but he does he did report this and and the reporter who interviewed him said he was extremely sincere and he, they were felt forced to believe the guy uh 
but it would be nice to find that exact location and perhaps find some remnants uh, of something. Well, what was it? What was it? Was was it a crash of a of an extraterrestrial craft? Uh, we probably will never know, but hey, maybe somebody will discover something out there at the Kadat Pass at some point, and uh, the mystery will be solved. Uh, or maybe what happened here, maybe what uh, after Lumley left, maybe some flying saucers showed up and, and blew it in the smithereens, uh, similarly to that story I was talking about uh, in the previous podcast uh, where uh, this uh, architect in 1950 Argentina found a flying saucer and the next day when he went back it was just a pile of ashes and uh, there were two flying saucers hovering over it. Uh, and the two flying saucers zipped inside of a cylinder-shaped object and then the cylinder-shaped object took took off at incredible fantastic speeds uh maybe that's what happened maybe they uh the aliens came and destroyed the evidence after uh after it crashed because apparently that does happen sometimes after uh, uh going through that article yesterday anyway very interesting story and i want to thank kevin thank you very much for sharing this and uh for sending me the links and uh for letting me know about it i really enjoyed it and uh, I, I do, like I said, I, uh, to any listeners out there, uh, I, check it out. It's a, it's a good article. Check out his website. He has some other good stuff on there as well. Okay, uh, moving on. I wanted to talk about uh, Avi Loeb for a minute here. Now, Avi Loeb seemed uh, recently, uh, you know, it seemed like he was somewhat skeptical of the claims of the government covering up the extraterrestrial reality. But now it seems like he's uh, talking like, oh, well, maybe there is something to this. He apparently uh, recently met with, uh, talked with David Grush uh, for a period of time. And then he was uh, having an interview, he was interviewed with uh, uh, Chris Cuomo and uh, he made some statements. Uh, now he's saying he's, he's talking in a different tune here now, according to Mike Colangelo, uh, who's a Twitter presence on UFO Twitter all the time. He uh, pointed this out, and I'll just read his tweet here. He says, Avi Loeb talked to Drape David Grush for more than an hour. No high-profile scientists engaged right now in the UFO program. Dr. Avi Loeb is open to the idea that the United States government has physical evidence of non-human intelligence, as David Grush alleges. Avi says he would love to know what the United States government has and is willing to go through any hopes that is required to get access to this material or physical evidence. Dr. Loeb also makes a strong point that anything that comes from outside the solar system should not remain classified and hidden from scientists. He goes on to say if he had access to the classified data, it could save him decades from searching with the Galileo project. I wish Avi would at least address the other NHI options than ET or alien tech and craft coming from outside the solar system, but we all have our own thresholds. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm actually at that threshold myself, Mike, because I, I, I think it is extraterrestrial. I don't. I, I mean, I know there's a lot of people out there that say it could be other things like interdimensional and whatnot. Uh, I believe it's extraterrestrial. Uh, but that doesn't make me right. That does not make me right. That's just my belief. It's something. It's non-human. I know that much. We all agree on that point, I think. 
but we don't know what uh, it is. But uh, the point I, the reason I wanted to talk about this because this is something I know I've been talking about. I know I talked about this. I made these same kind of statements at least probably a year ago. I've talked about this before. How like things like the Galileo project. The you know if the government would come clean, then they, the Galileo project would be unnecessary because they would have the information they need right and and the and the evidence right in front of their faces. They'd be able to study it right then and there. I mean, if the if the if the scientists like Harvard's Avi Loeb were to have access to this, then they could uh, uh, they could come up with with uh, th- their own uh, hypotheses about what these things are up to and what's going on and that they're wasting their time with the Galileo project. That's what's happening because of the cover up. Scientists like Avi Loeb is wasting his time. And he actually admits it here now. He, he actually realizes it. And that's just something I, like I said, I know I said this at least probably a year ago. Uh, he goes on to say, if he had access to this classified data, it could save him decades. Yes, exactly. It could save him, everyone decades. There would be no need. You, you'd have the act, you'd have the stuff. You'd know that that's real. You know that they're here. You know what they're doing. You would have access to the craft. You would know that these craft exist and that they're, uh, that what they're capable of doing. So yes, that that's bingo finally yes uh, so I'm, I'm happy to see that i'm happy to see that uh avi's coming around here so yeah that, that is a very good to see okay uh i'm gonna move on here uh and i want to talk about uh, the recent uh anchor or excuse me spotify poll uh it used to be called anchor uh now it's uh, called spotify for podcasters but uh i i did this episode yesterday. The title was E.T.'s Disintegrated Crashed Saucer Containing Dead Alien Pilots in 1950 Argentina. And I asked this question. If you found a crashed flying saucer along a lonely highway, would you attempt to go inside of it? Yes or no? Now, I've had 62 votes so far. 23 people, or 37.1%, say no. And 39 people, a majority, 62.9%, are saying yes. Now, of course, the story we were talking about yesterday was with regard to that architect. He he actually found this crashed flying saucer along this lonely highway in broad daylight, and he pulled over. He walked up to it, and there was a ramp, and he went inside there, and he saw three dead alien creatures inside. And then at at some point, he finally decided, I'd better get the hell out of here. He got out of there, went went back, got his friends, uh, some engineers. uh, They were in a town about over 100 miles away. And plus, he wanted to get his camera. He went back. The object was was gone, but there was a big pile of ashes. And they saw these other craft floating above, like I just talked about. But the whole thing is here. Would you go inside? And now, uh, I'll tell you what. I I don't know. I know the majority saying yes. I don't know. If you're presented with that uh, scenario, really, would you do it? Really think about this. Think carefully. I mean, look at some of the issues that happened. There was that uh, that one Canadian guy who uh, went up, went too close to a flying saucer and he got burned and his skin was stunk and it was all these issues that he had for the rest of his life. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if you want to get close to one of these things. You could be walking right into some jackpot that you wish you didn't walk into. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know what I would do. I don't know. I really don't know. If I, if I was driving down a highway and there was nobody else around and I saw a flying saucer just crash on the side of the road and there was a door on it, opened up. Wow, going inside. Mm, I, you know what? I probably would. I think I would. I wouldn't care. I would walk inside. I would get, I would get my cell phone, 
get my cell phone ready, put it on. First off, I'd start recording it immediately. I'd probably start, li- I'll tell you what I'll do. If, I, if that ever happens to me right now, I'm definitely going to go in. I don't care what the results, I don't care if whatever happens, doesn't matter. But I'm going to start, I'll live stream it from the spot. Hopefully there's there's coverage, right? I'll, I'll live stream it from the spot of the crash as I go in. Every, you know, in fact, everybody, everybody out there in this whole world, if you don't have your own YouTube channel going, you should get one, at least start one, start it up. Uh, you know, have put something on there, and, so, and then, uh, you know, have the ability to live stream this stuff or live stream it on some other uh, platform. There's all kinds of platforms out there. Just set, have everything prepared so the in, in, in the in the eventuality that you come across, uh, I don't know anything, crashed flying saucer, flying flying saucer, aliens walking around a forest, whatever you c- come across, right? Have have it set up so you're gonna so you can live stream it, not just record it, live stream it. And this would prevent the, you know, hopefully, would actually help uh, prevent any sort of government interference from stopping it. Because you know they're they're probably checking this stuff out at all times. You know they they want to make sure that this information doesn't get out because they want to hold on to this information. They want to keep this secret to themselves, and they don't want this stuff getting out there. Uh, so the only way you have to try to get that information out very quickly. Uh, and, and, and because before they move in and, and, and cover, try to cover it up. Uh, cause once we, once you, there's, a, there's a red line as Richard Dolan always talks about, if we ever get past that red line, there's going to be, that's going to be the point of no return. I believe we're actually right on that red line right now. Uh, I mean, it just takes a little nudge, a little bit, a little bit more, a little further, and we're going to be there. Uh, something's going to happen at some point. I think one of these, you know, you have to think, uh, in the minds of some whistleblowers right now they're probably some of them are thinking some people with access to this are probably asking themselves questions and uh, planning out scenarios in their mind on how they could proceed how they could end this whole cover-up in in one fell swoop uh anyway i'm off track uh yeah i don't know yeah i think i would go in i wouldn't care i'd go in I would, I would, now, if I saw a bunch of live ones walking around, I might have second thoughts. I might hide in the bush and just film it, you know, and try to live stream it from a live, from a, from behind a couple of trees or something. But if there's just laying there and it's crashed and there's nothing else going on and there's a door open, I'm going in. I'm going in with my cell phone ready, and I'm gonna, you know, live stream it, take pictures. I'll do whatever is necessary. Uh, I, I actually, if there's a dead alien body in it, I'm dragging it to the car. Actually, that's what that guy should have did. That architect, I was thinking about this. He actually should have dragged one of those dead aliens out of the craft and and, and shoved it in the back seat of his car, and then right when he got in the in the town, contact the the Associated Press or something. That's what he should have did, because that would have been end all evidence right then and there. Anyway, uh, I want to say thank you all for joining me. Until next time.